Hello. You've tuned in to a podcast series about people all born after World War II who were members of the Communist Party of Australia, the CPA, which wound up over 30 years ago. I'm Stephen Ricks, one of those former members of the CPA, and I was born in 1957. This is episode 8. Previous episodes have been concerned with why people joined the party and its eventual dissolution. This episode is about the CPA's contribution to its members' continuing political education. Everyone interviewed was asked what they became aware of or involved in as a result of their party membership. Lindsay Benfell identifies the party's anti-racism as contributing to his political education and areas of activism in the early 1970s. He refers to Paul Kaplan, who joined the party in 1977. Lindsay also refers to the influence of the party in providing a different perspective on his trade union involvement. Yes, um, anti-racism actually was, uh, uh, um, but um, I'm from New Zealand, South Island, 1950s, uh, very white monoculture, um, where there weren't many Maori, they were in the North Island primarily. The Maori that we knew were friends of my stepfather working in the abattoirs. In Perth, though, I came across a man called Paul Kaplan, who I don't think was a member of the party, but has always been very close to the party, Um, ex um, Zimbabwean or Rhodesian. And he was obsessed with anti racism. And I'm talking about early 1970s, mid 1970s onwards. And um, so through his influence um, and others, I became much more aware of the issues of racism. Um, and were, was more active than I would have otherwise been. Um, so that was the main thing, I suppose, because I would have been involved in, in, in industrial unionism in any event. The party gave me a different perspective to that work, but I would have been involved in that work because I realised when I was at university that that's what I wanted to do, and uh, I was fortunate enough to um, to do that. So. Absent the party, I still would have done that and probably been an ALP person instead. Louise Connor identifies the CPA's commitment to feminism and party members' work to get women's struggles taken seriously by the trade union movement as a major contribution to her political education in the CPA. Louise also mentions her increasing awareness of the centrality of working class politics to bringing about change. Well, you know, so I sort of got a job in the environment movement, but I was probably only there for about five, you know, figuratively five or ten minutes before I sort of joined the party. Um, But... um, so the, the key ones were, well, the ones that sort of, well, was the women's movement, yeah. feminism. Um, 
and that became, you know, like I was quite active in the early 80s in Victoria and mid-80s in Victoria in building our Council for Action for Equal Pay and a whole lot of other little organisations and um, uh, big organisations. Uh, the union movement, um, what the CPA taught you was the importance of the union movement as a way of sort of um, building that, well, building a sense of class, you know, a uh, building a sense of class so you can then engage, if you like, in a class struggle, that is to move everyone sort of forward or whatever. I mean, as I said, that was sort of my family were very strong union people and I got that sense of sort of solidarity through them. Uh, but the party really, you know, if, in a sense, they sort of intellectualise those sorts of things. They explain to you why it's important, um, why the working class is an important instrument to sort of, you know, bring about change, uh, why you don't bother just spending all of your time trying to convince the capitalist class that, you know, they could make the world a better place or whatever. Adam Farrer became more aware rather than simply aware, of the dimensions of the trade union movement and environmental activism. The Jack, he refers to, is Jack Mundy. Joyce Stevens and other activist women broadened Adam's view of the women's movement and through party activities such as the Marxist summer schools, Adam developed an increasingly broad understanding of theoretical positions within Marxism. It's, there's no doubt that I became more aware and much more clearly aware of the the dimensions of the the union movement, the role of the party, and the the, the campaigns of the union movement. I became much more aware of the kind of environmental activism at the time because of people like Jack. Um, so again, they were not things that sort of fell on stony ground kind of stuff. There was it was already ploughed, but but that was much more um, much more much clearer. Um, Joyce Stevens was a huge influence on me, and the way that she and a whole lot of women in the party were involved in areas like, for example, um, the uh, women's health centres and so on, broadened my understanding of the women's movement. Um, so that was quite important. Um, being able to have... So while at, at university, clearly, there's a lot of discussions around Marxism, but the party had a particular analysis and discourse and critique um, as an ongoing project. So. Um, a lot of the things that came through and were teased out through the Marxist summer schools and so on were, were really a way of broadening my understanding of theoretical, the theoretical positions. David McKnight makes a number of points which places the left, including the CPA, in the context of other broad social changes. First that what he learnt while a member of the party, he attributes to the contact he had with individuals within the party. Second, David points to what he brought to the party, but his work for the party newspaper, Tribune, 
led him to become a journalist. And third, that what was happening in the left in the early to mid-70s was happening in other contexts too. The media, medical, legal and scientific industries. It's not an easy question to answer because it... Well, from 70 to 75, I was fully engaged in student politics. And as I've said, I, the party didn't inspire me or didn't, wasn't guiding me or it was more a matter of they were interested in what we were doing and they were keen to, to make contact with the young radical students. Um, and... Hard to know, really. I mean, it was the personal, it was through working with people and listening to them and talking politics with them in the party that I picked up, uh, picked up, uh, you know, a knowledge and a, and a direction and so on. But because I edited the student newspaper at Sydney Uni in 1975, it was almost a kind of natural transition to apply to work on Tribune the following year after I left. And from then on, it was a question of, you know, using this, having the sort of knowledge and skills that I'd picked up in putting out a student newspaper, using them on Tribune with, with mixed results. As part of that, I, because of that, I, this funny thing was I ended up as a journalist. I never intended to be a journalist. And working on Tribune for me was a political commitment uh, an activity, um, but at the end of it all, I'd turned into a journalist, and I'd e- I was even go- attending meetings of a little group called around a publication called New Journalist, which was in the days before Fairfax was a small liberal newspaper, and mm. where the ABC was still run by troglodytes, and there was all sorts of people whose names I still see and some of them gone on to become sort of very senior journalists. Well, we used to meet in the back room in Paddington and put out this magazine and expose the bosses and what they were up to, not as a Marxist thing, but as a just a radical left thing. I mean, what we went through, this is not away from your question, but in many ways, the sort of activism of the left in those days was outside existing institutions, AMA or you know, ESMH or whatever. And what we saw, and it's fascinating that it happened, is that gradually the sort of radical and progressive elements outside the institutions slowly uh, transformed them. I mean, that was most obvious in, for me, with this Sydney Morning Herald, which was a stunningly conservative newspaper, and in the space of a few years, it, because all, for all sorts of reasons, uh, but younger, newer people got involved, and it, 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 it changed. You know, and the same sort of thing happened, I'm sure, in the legal field and medical field, and so on. Mark Ricks formed close working and personal relationships with members of another small party, which was also Trotskyist. 
Mark specifically refers to the lack of sectarianism whilst working for the party in Wollongong on the south coast of New South Wales, despite his dislike for these other small parties' perspectives and motivations. It was happenstance, really, I guess. Um, <clears throat> getting to know and um, understand and to some extent dislike the perspectives and the motivations of other um, also very small, um, perhaps even smaller, um, left you know, socialist parties. But also um, at the time forming a, um, um, strong friendships, particularly with um, uh, people in the Socialist Workers' Party. Um, and we were able to um, share a lot of activism and a, a, a very deep friendship without um, any um, without any sectarianism, and that was really good. Yeah. Well, as it turns out, when when um, I was the organizer of the Communist Party, a very um, then very close friend of mine was the organizer of the SWP down here. And we, we formed a very close bond, to some extent politically, but certainly in, in, um, um, in terms of friendship. Mm. And, and there, was, there was mutual respect, and that's what meant we, there was no sectarianism. Sanjay Seth is unequivocal about the contribution the CPA made to his awareness of and appreciation for feminism and trade unionism. Sanjay contrasts the backgrounds of the people he mixed with in the party with the limited circles he mixed in prior to that. Uh, well, feminism for one. I mean, not that I became involved as a big activist. Again, you might recall there were big debates about whether men could even be feminists and so on. But I certainly became conscious of this as an issue in a way that I completely was unaware of. I mean, you know, reading Marx and Lenin did not prepare you for um, so, so So that was a revelation and a sort of learning curve and an encounter with a world that was not mine. Unions, again, I wasn't involved, but my, my identification or my sense of the working class was a very abstract one. I mean, I came from a middle class you know, intellectual, quasi-intellectual background. I didn't really know anything about the working class. It was a rhetorical device. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, I mixed with people um, who were unionists, who, you know, some of them were blue-collar workers. They were all well-read people, so... But they were, you know, they came from the working class, and this was my encounter with a flesh-and-blood working class as distinct from an abstract notion of the working class. Bob Boughton credits his introduction to the international dimension of various struggles to his membership of the Communist Party and to alerting him to the East Timorese struggle following the Indonesian invasion. In addition, Bob notes that the party enhanced his participation in First Nations struggles and trade unionism. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I 
I already had, I'd been a member of ABSCOL, so my involvement with the Aboriginal rights movement was already there when I joined the party, but the party taught me heaps about how to work in the Aboriginal rights movement. Same with the unions. I, um, the Timor stuff, I, um, well, it was the party that introduced me to the Timor struggle because a friend of mine, Tim Rouse, went to Timor in 75, just before the Indonesian invasion, and he was a member of the party before I was. And he came back and got me involved in the Timor Solidarity work in 75. So um, that's probably the main one that I would not have got into probably if it hadn't have been for the party. <clears throat> and then the the anti-basis stuff. The, um, well, they, there was already a peace movement in Alice Springs which had been set up by people who weren't necessarily communists. But it was definitely the party that helped me do that work in 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 the peace movement, but it was a but that was um it wasn't just yeah yeah I don't know I don't think there was anything other than the Timor thing that I wouldn't have got into in one way or another. But the party taught me the value of international work. I think that's the thing that I think is most important about the Communist Party is it teaches you that it's an international struggle. And that it's imperialism, not capitalism, that is the problem, you know. Capitalism is just <clears throat> part of the, it's really the, the imperialist version of capitalism that is the thing that we have to deal with, you know. Romaine Rutnam highlights industrial work and the Communist Women's Collective with making major contributions to her political development. She makes specific reference to involvement in a women's conference in Yugoslavia, which, like fool's cap paper, no longer exists. Romaine makes reference to the sort of work which featured in the lives of communists, such as the production of newsletters and providing support to struggles with which, as individuals, they may not have had an intimate connection. I think the industrial work that I came across through the TNC initially before moving to Wollongong, I got involved with their building research group, um, transport, I think, was another, <clears throat> and um, the women's movement was really important to me too. And I, I think I wouldn't have <clears throat> got involved as much as I did without the party women's collective, especially at Minto. I remember lots of uh, very um, engaged discussions with, with women there. So that was... Yes, I, I think because of them, I was able to contribute and participate in a letter uh, when I represented the CPA to an international conference in Yugoslavia, mm -hmm. complaining about the very uh, small number of women involved in that conference. And I've just reread the text of that letter that I contributed to. 
So I think, as I've mentioned, the industrial activism, I one of the things that I really loved about being party organiser for the brief period that I was in Wollongong was having to work with the comrades in the different branches to put out a weekly um, full scap page of a newsletter for each of the branches. So the wharfie, the miner, <laughs> the steel worker, and uh, the members would come in and collect them and hand them out and try to sell tribunes on the job and that sort of thing. And I was involved with the Chimera Mines dispute. Yes. And I remember having to go home from work and collect some old blankets and take them to the mine pit for the workers who were striking on the ground in the cold. And uh, Sally Bourne and others, we were uh, keeping a fire going up at the top of the pit and giving them soup and so on. It was just amazing. And I respected and really loved doing all of that stuff. Mike Davis talks about becoming aware, whilst he was a member of the party, of work done by Laurie Carmichael and Ted Wilshire and others in the period leading up to the Prices and Incomes Accord in 1982. Mike also refers to the nature of our biological and social systems. And I need to advise listeners to the fact that I have no control whatsoever over the behaviour of other people's diabolical devices. I suppose the, the work that uh, uh, Laurie Carmichael and, uh, and Ted Wilshere and others promoted with the Accord was something that... Uh, um, grasped our interest at that uh, particular time and continued to, uh, to influence the trade union movement and indeed the, the left for, you know, uh, quite a number of years. It's only in recent times I've actually uh, sat back and had a, another look at that and think that in some ways we were a little misdirected because mm -hmm. I think we gave up too much uh, in the interests of... Uh, um, well, amalgamation of unions, for example, so we lost identity for a lot of uh, union members. Um, we've lost, I think, the union density, uh, membership density in Australia at present is about 15%, and, yes. and there is a, only concentrated to concentrate in areas like teaching and nursing and so forth. Um, I suppose what I became aware of were the... the the changes that have occurred since the um, end of the Whitlam era and the and the onset of neoliberalism, mm. and I've done a lot of uh, thinking and work about uh, about this later later period, and uh, to me, that's where our emphasis needs to uh, to be. I'm uh, I'm not. I, I, because everything we're dealing with um, in politics um, and indeed as a biologist, uh, they're complex systems. Mm. And the interesting thing about complex systems is they're uh, 
you know, the whole is much more than the sum of its parts and they're highly unpredictable. And in fact, my first PhD supervisor I selected because of his involvement in uh, um, complexity theory. So I've, I've become really interested in the, the nature of the system and, and how neoliberalism actually works. You've been listening to the voices of Australian communists born after World War II. In Episode 9, we'll continue this exploration of how membership of the Communist Party impacted on people's political development and activity. Comrades, the book marking the 100th anniversary of the formation of the CPA is available from your favourite bookshop or the Search Foundation. Dr Mick Padden provided invaluable technical assistance. See you next time.